The Queen's Jubilee sure was fun, but what's really behind all that glitz and glamour? What's going on with the UK ahead? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It's been many decades since the sun finally set on the British Empire, but Unique among the Western empires of the 19th and 20th century, the United Kingdom somehow remains a global superpower. Today's image of formerly Great Britain is one of ruffled glory, the incredible pageantry of the Queen's massive guilt-dripping jubilee on one hand, and the outside economic power and unknown effects of Brexit— and the precipice at which the tousled prime minister now finds himself. All this combines to yield an, at best, unpredictable future for what critics call Eucania, an antiquated constitutional monarchy increasingly at odds with reality. The Queen's Jubilee, celebrating her 70 years on the throne, presented a picture of the UK to the world of imperial power and wealth which depended on the toil of workers in its many colonies spread throughout the world, even though those formal bonds are either gone or are fraying, despite the intentions of the wealth of the home island. Our guest today, Duke University's Professor Kenneth Surin, is hardly alone in expecting this jubilee to be the last and his perspective on the teetering political power of Prime Minister Boris Johnson borders, dare I say, on glee. (laughs) Great Britain used to be the center of finance for the Western world. It was unquestionably one of the great powers in the two world wars. How ready is the UK to adjust to a world which is moving away from their domination and control? And as America's staunchest ally for decades, what does that mean for us on this side of the Atlantic going forward? Kenneth Surin, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. You're welcome. Kenneth Surin is professor and chair of the program in literature at Duke University. He's the author of Christ, Ethics, and Tragedy, The Turnings of Darkness and Light, Essays in Philosophical and systemic, Systematic Theology, and Theology and the Problem of Evil. Wow. He is Professor of Literature and Professor of Religion and Critical Theory. He trained initially as an analytical philosopher. His teaching areas include Anglophone literatures outside England, philo- philosophy, critical theory, Marxism, state theory, and international political economy. His article in Counterpunch had the grand title, Queen's Jubilee Flummery, Boris Johnson's Desperate Rebanding. Rebranding, I should say. Well, the Queen's 70 years have seen an almost unbelievable history move before her eyes. Of all the superlatives used to describe Elizabeth II, Cern quotes David Mitchell to put it together simply. She is, quote, an elderly woman who has 
handled the frankly surreal circumstances of her existence with stoicism and dignity. I will give her that, that's for sure. She held up. Uh, can you also quote Tom Paine, who says, a hereditary monarch is as absurd a proposition as a hereditary doctor or mathematician. Fascinating quote. I got to read that again. Hereditary monarch is as absurd a proposition as a hereditary doctor or mathematician. But that calls into the question, what are the skills necessary to be an effective, functioning, hereditary monarch? Hasn't history shown in country after country that, country that it, it really takes minimal skill to be a monarch, but it does take skill to survive the pressures? Your thoughts? Um, well, I think you nailed it uh, on the head with your last comment. Um, I think the skill that is required is what the uh, psychologist Irving Gottman called impression management. Um, and she and her handlers, because let's put it, uh, it's a team that is at work, have been extremely adept at doing that. Mm. Um, her children show no sign of that adroitness, though Prince William, uh, I think, because he is more up-to-date uh, than his father uh, and his father's siblings, uh, seems to have some of that skill. That skill. Um, and beyond that, really, um, the role is symbolic and ceremonial. Cutting ribbons when a bridge is open. Right. Um, smashing a bottle of champagne against a newly launched uh, battleship, etc., etc. Um, that's the entirety of the job, I think. Well, is it onerous? Um, you know, I really don't know because I've never been waited on hand and foot uh, all my life. Um, so I think there we have it in a nutshell. Um, there is... Uh, a public persona that has to be cultivated. And then, of course, what goes on beyond, behind the scenes mm. um, in private, I think, uh, covers the whole range. And I'm not talking here specifically about Elizabeth II, covers everything from uh, grand living to, uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum, something, as we know this from the... Uh, revelations concerning the love life of Prince Andrew have mm. uh, been quite sordid. Um, so there we are, uh, in private spectrum, in public impression management. And I have no idea how many properties the Windsors own, uh, but they have various different... The Queen has nine palaces. Not... <laughs> nine palaces. That I... <laughs> That ought to do, yeah. I must say. Whereas the rest of the country doesn't have any palaces that I know of. I mean, there's some leftover ones that people can visit and tourists go to. You use the word flummery. That's not a word a lot of us are familiar with. In what ways is the media's focused flummery the order of the day in 2022 in the UK and perhaps elsewhere? Well... You know, we uh, we saw during the Jubilee, Jubilee celebrations um, new, numerous royals and their hangers-on 
absolutely draped with bling and ribbons, etc., etc. In fact, Prince Charles at one point looked as, looked as though he could barely stand uh, with all those medals and sashes, etc., uh, etc. Et so there's, there's that. And then, of course, there, there's the, um, uh, the hangers-on, mm. um, uh, you know, the, uh, the gentlemen of the bedchamber, um, the ladies-in-waiting. Whatever that is. Uh, and quite often with uh, medieval titles, mm. the keep of the royal swans. Uh, well, let's not go down that road because I, I myself might probably dissolve into laughter. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, I'll just men- mention a few more. Uh, page of the backstairs, lady of the bedchamber, and woman of the bedchamber, gold stick and silver stick, uh, the groom of the stool, uh, the clerk of the closet, uh, except the, the rouge dragon, uh, Persivouin. Uh, probably going back to the days of William the Conqueror when French was the language uh, at court, etc. But all this is meaningless today. Um, You know, it's just uh, there to uh, present a form of smoke and mirrors to show that, uh, that, uh, you know, this is a a wonderful form of pageantry that uh, Brits are expected to lap up. And the the flummery, the, the the glamour, the glitz, boy, that was impressive. It sure, it clearly uh, impression management. The impression was, hey, England is pretty cool. Look at all that cool stuff, you know, and, and this this royalty. And I do wonder, you know, aside from the nine palaces that she has, uh, th- these people all get paid. I assume, do they get paid from her? Personal account? Does it affect the taxes that the people of the UK pay? Um, no. Uh, you know, the intricacies of the royal finances are shrouded in a great deal of secrecy. Um, but we know that she receives a huge amount of money from what's called the law, uh, royal list, which is basically taxpayers' money. Um, so, uh, while we talk, I'm trying to pull up how this goes up year by year. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to pull up the latest figure, um, but let's uh, it's a lot. talk to this. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that happens here in, in the currently United States as well is a show. Politics loves a good show. The, the orange guy, the former president, talks about, well, ratings. What are the ratings? That's all that counts. That's all that counts. And it sounds like, you know, it's kind of a version of flummery here. Uh, you know, the pageantry, the glamour, the celebrity being a public star. And I wonder, you know, if not, well, even perhaps more here than in the U.K., Politics has morphed into celebrity. You got to be a public star. I mean, it is likely that the next U.S. senator from the United States state of Georgia 
will be a football star, Herschel Walker, who has not the slightest <laughs> political or governmental experience. Go ahead. Uh. <laughs> it's a star. It's a star quality. You know, it's, it's, being a star uh, seems to have uh, taken the place of uh, running a government in, in some aspects. But I have some questions about... Uh, uh, a, a uh, constitutional monarch. What about the idea that it, and this is something I've thought about a lot, what about the idea that it is useful to have a head of state with celebrity and star power, but no actual political power, no role in the government, leaving the gov running the government to another person, the head of government? in many cases, the prime minister. For example, I think, you know, Ronald Reagan was a star. He was like the perfect example of this is America, you know, the, the tall, sitting high on the horse uh, and be a star and just uh, representing the cowboy that, you know, America's image has been for so many uh, uh, decades. So that perhaps... I mean, I wonder if we in the United States wouldn't be better off if we had some Reagan on horseback as head of state while a boring but capable, experienced runner of government, Walter Mondale, could run government, a separate head of state and head of government. What about that? You're, you're, you've, you've seen both. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well... <laughs> I think, you know, I'm an anti-monarchist where um, the United Kingdom is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and although there uh, is a substantial core of people who say, well, you know, her symbolic value cannot be placed, uh, cannot be registered in cash terms, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think if you look at the, and we have to say it's uncalculated worth, um, because mm -hmm. the Crown Estates, um, and this encompasses all the land, uh, the land holdings of the Queen, mm -hmm. and they are extremely substantial. Um, you know, she is one of the biggest landowners in the world. Um, mm or certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, now, I've got a figure here, uh, the sovereign grant, which is taxpayer money mm -hmm. that went to the Queen uh, in 2019, and it's certainly gone up uh, since then, sure. was in great, uh, in pounds sterling, sure. uh, 82.2 million. And this covers staff, travel, building, uh, maintenance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. She doesn't get uh, a salary, but of course, this is money that she gets uh, from uh, the taxpayer, and it clearly, well, obviously, doesn't include <coughs> the money that she gets from uh, her land holdings, private estates, etc., etc. So. I think that gives you a broad picture of how extremely wealthy the queen is. And does she, you know, 
I don't know that much about uh, uh, British government, but there's the House of Lords <clears throat> and the House of Commons. The House of Lords, I, my sense is it doesn't have the political power that it used to have, but that they were the peers, that they, they were the, the wealthy class uh, who could keep track of and, and uh, check on the uh, perhaps excessive power of the democracy that goes on in the House of Commons. And that's what the U.S. Senate was supposed to be like here originally. They were supposed to represent the, the, uh, the high wealth uh, people. But what, what's the situation with the uh, House of Lords and the Commons now? That's changed, has it not? Um, yes, it's changed uh, dramatically over the last few decades. There was a time, uh, as you point out, when the House of Lords House of Lords consisted entirely of hereditary peers. Uh-huh. Uh, now uh, that uh, portion of hereditary uh, peers has been reduced over the decades, and the House of Lords now is a mixture uh, of some hereditary peers and others who are appointed for their lifetimes only. They can't pass their titles on to their children. So these are yeah. political appointments uh, that are relatively short-term. Now, in terms of what, a, what the House of Lords can do, mm. uh, it has no power these days to veto legislation or to pass its own legislation. Mm-hmm. All it can do uh, is to put forward amendments uh, that will delay the implementation oh. of legislation. It sounds like the Senate here. The Senate here has often been called the place where good bills go to die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, fortunately, uh, and you know, this might be entirely accidental, some of the excesses uh, of the Tory government since Mrs. Thatcher Uh. and, of course, uh, the government of Boris Johnson. Yes. uh, The House of Lords... um, I think being a rather more decorous place and aware of its reputation as such, uh, the House of Lords has put a break, and that's all it is, uh-huh. not a stop, uh, a slowing down uh, of some of the excesses of Mrs. Thatcher and the Tory government since 2010. Yes, and we will get to Mrs. Thatcher as well as the guy with the always messy blonde hair, Boris Johnson. If you just tuned in, <laughs> Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Kenneth Cern, professor and chair of the program in literature at Duke University. We're talking about the Queen's Jubilee, what that means going forward, and the precipice on which the current uh, prime minister stands. It's Boy, it's an interesting time to be in the UK. And... And uh, can you tell a story, a personal story, that has to do with the Queen's coronation day in 1953 and your younger brother, Patrick? It seems like an allegory, if you will, for the monarchy and the common good of the British people. Tell us a little bit about that, please. I know it's a hard story. Yeah, well, first of all, as an aside, um, I'm retired now, so... I'm emeritus in all the positions that you described. Okay. Okay. The story in a nutshell is this. Um, My parents uh, were 
My father was a colonial civil servant, my mother a teacher, so we lived in a British colony, uh, Malaya, as it was then called. And the coronation, of course, uh, was celebrated in all the British colonies, and Malaya was no exception. It so happened that a few days before the coronation, uh, my uh, younger brother, Patrick, uh, who was born in 1949. The coronation was in 1953. Uh, so he was four years old. Um, and what happened was he got diphtheria, uh, which is a, a disease that clogs up the lungs. Uh, the technology being what it is in those days, um, the fluid from the lungs had to be cleared manually. So uh, he was in hospital uh, my mother was sitting by his side. Uh, the hospital uh, throughout was short-staffed uh, because, and because uh, people had been given the day off to celebrate the coronation. So the nursing station didn't, you know, uh, I think there, was one or, there were one or two nurses covering several wards. The nursing station at his ward was unoccupied. Uh, so my mother went frantically to the other wards in search of a nurse. She finally found one. Um, and unfortunately, by the time they got back to Patrick, uh, he had ceased breathing right. uh, because of the, uh, uh, the fluid that had completely filled his lungs. Uh, so there we are. An and, allegory? Yeah. I suppose you could call it that. Well, I, I, I wonder, you know, we've all heard the legend of Rome burning while Emperor Nero plays the fiddle. And uh, is there a feeling among the populace of the UK these days that this may be the case with the monarchy, perhaps increasing feeling like uh, it's, it's not particularly relevant, the, the, the monarchy, and that it, uh, it's not exactly helping the stability of the UK? Is it all like Emperor Nero playing the fiddle? Well, um, you know, but Nero uh, had complete autocratic powers, uh, so that's a principal difference. Ah, yeah. uh, the monarchy is not uh, an autocracy. Um, but really, I think uh, you mentioned the word uh, relevance in the world of today, or you mentioned that term. Yes. Uh, and to a large extent, uh, uh, in my case, I would say 99.9%. In terms of the actual administration of the country, it's completely uh, irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Now, the main argument that is made by upholders of the monarchy is, you know, it brings in a huge amount of tourist revenue because people come to see the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace uh, and to visit uh, royal gardens, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. But of course... The counter-argument is this. Versailles in France, and France, of course, is a republic. Yes. Uh, Versailles alone brings in much more tourist revenue than the entire uh, British royal establishment. Interesting. So I think the argument that you need um, a figurehead, uh, a personal figurehead, uh, to be at the forefront of all these baubles and palatial mm -hmm. establishments. Um, but that doesn't survive scrutiny because of the example provided by Versailles. 
Fascinating. Yeah, wow. Oh, I hadn't I certainly hadn't thought about that, but Versailles is pretty uh pretty dramatic and has a rather large garden and there are that hall of mirrors, of course. But the 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 person representing the country, you know, I, I, I wonder about that. It seems like unfortunately we require charisma here in the United States. Something about that. Now Joe Biden sort of lacking in that but Obama we needed it there he was a big star people like that star power and I, I do wonder about some sort of psychological need for a personification of of who the country is I mean you think of all these different uh, countries where there's a leader that that really stands for and and you know you look at that person that man or that woman and that's like Yep, that's that country. And I don't know if, if, if this is something that can be done away with, or I don't even know if people in England uh, really want to do that. There must be some different uh, uh, feelings on that. Um, well, I think, you know, the United States is much more uh, enthralled by celebrity spectacles you know, the Kardashians, mm, uh, mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then is the case in the United Kingdom. Wow. Of course, British culture is becoming Americanized uh, bit by bit. Uh, so um, the difference is narrowing, but there is still a perceivable difference between the two. And uh, I think as yet, uh, no one in the monarchy is expected to uh, exude charisma of the kind that you associate with, say, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Um, Britain has not got to that stage as yet. Yeah, my my sense is that Charles, while I think he may become a good and capable king, is not real gifted in the charisma department, but that's okay. Uh, That's putting mildly, (laughs) and, you know, his personal defects have been sufficiently exposed over the years. The monarchy has become um, less less secretive, less uh, behind-the-scenes operators, etc., etc. And we, I think, Charles's personal foibles uh, are now pretty well known, especially those surrounding uh, the, the the life of um, Lady Diana yes. Spencer, his his deceased uh, deceased wife. And I I, would, I do wonder about the influence of tabloid style news reporting. It's played. Correct me if I'm wrong. My senses and I I. I'm embarrassed to admit I haven't been to England in 50 years when it was at my last semester of college. But tabloid-style news reporting has long played a prominent role in British politics. How does that style, that, you know, like trying to push the doors open, the the, uh, reporters, the photographers just push, push, push. How does that style play into both sides of our topic today, the Queen's Jubilee and what you call the desperate rebranding of Boris Johnson? What about the power of the tabloids there? And it's come over here, too. Oh, the uh, the tabloids are immensely powerful. 
um, in a way that uh, the average American uh, can't comprehend. You know, three-inch headlines, uh, dramatic photos, exclamation marks, uh, etc., etc. And of course, uh, the uh, you know there wouldn't be a paparazzi without the tabloids because the main source of income right. for the paparazzi are these tabloids. Now, as to the Queen, the, the monarchy's uh, relationship uh, with the phenomenon of the paparazzi and the tabloids, etc., well, it's one of symbiosis. Mm. Um, the, uh, the tabloids and the paparazzi undoubtedly are an inconvenient intrusion for many members of the royal family. But at the same time, uh, they provide it with a kind of oxygen. Um, Because what happens is uh, a constant stream of, uh, I put it in quotes, information, illustrations, you know, photographs, etc., relating to the, uh, the monarchy is available to the public. And this is the main source uh, of fulfillment for this desire, uh, and I can't put it any stronger than that, uh, this desire, which is completely irrational, uh, to turn the monarchy into a form of idolatry. Um, so the whole thing is a vast ecosystem mm. of uh, public hero worship, tabloids and paparazzi feeding that, and the monarchy needing the oxygen, as I've just called it, uh, of provided by this ecosystem in order to survive uh, in modern terms. So I think that's how the system operates uh, in a nutshell. Sometimes it seems as if the the royal family hates the tabloids and the paparazzi. I mean, it was the paparazzi that certainly contributed to the death of uh, Lady Di. But but you're suggesting that they actually kind of need each other. Fascinating. Yes, they do. Um, I wouldn't put it as strongly as saying that they are uh, in a mutual death grip. Um, (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) You know, sometimes, especially, you know, uh, when you think of uh, what uh, happens to Lady Di, you sometimes have to say it seems like a death grip. Yeah. Yeah, they were trying to run away from it. And being a a fan of of history, uh, Empire started, as I understand it, in 1532 under Henry VIII. And ever since then, the royal family seemed to symbolize the model of propriety, to hold up to the colonial people in the far-flung British uh, Empire. It, it was, after all, a civilizing mission, right? I mean, that's, that's what the British uh, islands, uh, island was there for, the British culture. It's a civilizing mission to bring to, yeah. to other people that the king or the queen is a perfect model. Now, when independence sentiment started to spread in the 1960s, if I have it right, Prime Minister Hal McMillan said the children of the colonies 
were growing up. <laughs> the children of the colonies. Is there evidence of that racist attitude remaining? And how does that affect life in the UK these days? Um, well, I think today, um, given that we only have vestiges uh, of that imperial past, um, the empire basically is a prop for nostalgia. Um, now, I'm not saying that, that this means that it's, uh, uh, it doesn't have uh, highly consequential uh, cultural uh, implications, because it does. I mean, one of the driving forces for Brexit mm. was the clear projection of uh, the EU putting a break on the UK really celebrating its imperial past and in some way mm. wanting to reclaim that imperial past. So Brexit was sold uh, basically as get out of the EU and we can once again uh, reclaim at least a part of our imperial heritage. Wow. Gosh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, that's what we have guests on this show for. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Professor Emeritus and Chair of the Program in Literature at Duke University. We're talking about uh, the Queen's Jubilee and what's next for the government uh, of England. And while we're on that, and what a character he is, Bojo. I don't think people over here know Boris Johnson as Bojo, but he seems to be uh, rather uh, known by that uh, over there. You write that at the Jubilee, the Prime Minister did not get a rousing cheer. You write Bojo being... The opposite. Bojo <laughs> being booed by his own side was seen by some commentators as a particularly damning verdict on his prime ministership. We on this side of the pond know his perpetually tousled blonde hair, and we've heard a bit about his playing by different rules during the COVID lockdown. What is the booing about, and what is the significance of it coming from the conservative Tory side of the aisle? That's really interesting, I think. really opens up something. Well, you know, at present, um, where Johnson's relationship uh, to his own party is concerned, I think the Tories are caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, on the one hand, Bo uh, Boris's, Bojo's personal popularity uh, has gone down the tubes. and But on the other hand... Um, there's no, as yet, publicly credible potential replacement for him. Right. So, uh, really, they need to get rid of him because of his low standing in the opinion polls and the fact that uh, his authority has been weakened uh, in major ways. They need to get rid of him, but they can't find anyone mm. who could take his place uh, that would be credible with the electorate. So, they're, they're, as I said, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Well, the, the Tories, the conservatives, they're in power at the moment, as they often are, but not always. Uh, is it just assumed that the Tories need to find a replacement for Bojo, or does it really open it up 
to the other parties as well. How strong is the conservative party? My sense is pretty strong, but you do tell um, me. Well, uh, it's been sinking in the polls. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that. I think the polls for the last year or so, or so have shown Labour to be ahead. But really, given the disasters presided over by the Conservative Party, hmm. the Labour Party, instead of being uh, ahead only by single figures, wow. should be 20 or 30 points ahead in the polls. And a lot of this is attributed to the lackluster leadership of the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, Uh um, who, frankly, I'm a member of the British Labour Party, and I would say straight out that Keir Starmer is an empty suit. Mm -hmm. Um, He has no real public persona uh, that the voters can warm to. Uh, He was a top lawyer before he entered politics. Uh, He's good at cross-examining Boris Johnson in Parliament, mm. but in terms of public campaigning, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, he's a wet paper bag. And this is the Labour Party, which has a a, a long history, uh, at least throughout the twentieth century. Uh, sometimes leaning left, sometimes not. Uh, uh, there was the. Uh, uh, oh, I can't even think of his name now. He was the Bill Clinton, basically. Of, of the Tony Labor. Blair. Yeah, Tony Blair. And that was a very different Labor Party, as was the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton. Both uh, seemed to be, you know, of the mold of, you know, just keeping the wealthy interests in power and rejecting the, uh, the more traditional Labor Party, uh, of which uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, still stands out. Now, he got... Uh, trounced, I kind of think, a bit unfairly uh, with some allegations of anti-Semitism. I think there's... Uh, Extremely unfairly. That was an orchestrated campaign of character assassination. Because there really is a big difference between, I mean, I'm Jewish, I'm obviously not anti-Semitic, but I'm very critical of the state of Israel. I am not a Zionist. But oftentimes people don't understand the difference that if you criticize, you know, the racism that's clear in the state of Israel, uh, then you're called anti-Semitic. So with Bojo seeming to lose support by the day, where where is the Labor Party? Are they going to go back to the uh, Bill Clinton model? Are they going to stick with Starmer? I mean, where is Jeremy Corbyn and all this? What's the status of the Labour Party? Those of us on the left here in the U.S. Are, would like to know. <laughs> well, you know, Corbyn, um, I would have to say, uh, is a campaigner. Um, he's not a great manager. Um, and I think part of the problems that he encountered, apart from the ill will from supporters of uh, Tony Blair, who was still hanging around, and preferred someone like Starmer, who would, if you like, go back to Blair's policy framework. Mm. They wanted to get rid of of Corbyn. That was obvious. And there was a great deal of scheming going on at the Labour Party headquarters, Mm. etc., scheming in that direction. But... uh, 
where's the party now? Yes. Well, uh, mm -hmm. Starmer clearly needs um, some kind of charisma transplant, uh, and his tack to the right has alienated the party membership. Uh, it was the largest uh, party in terms of membership in Europe with 600,000 members uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. 200,000 of those members have left. Um, it's still the largest political party in, in, the, in Europe in terms of membership, uh, but there is a great deal of disenchantment uh, about Starmer's way of leading the party. So, uh, and I can't see that continuing, but at the same time, um, what Starmer has managed to do is basically to isolate uh, the, the the socialist wing mm -hmm. of the Labour Party, uh, basically cast it towards the margins. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that he withdrew the parliamentary whip from Jeremy Corbyn means that Jeremy Corbyn has not been standing as a Labour MP. Uh, and I think Starmer, some are saying, well, you know, as the election approaches, and he needs to, if you like, reestablish relationships with the left of his own party, uh, he will bring uh, Corbyn back. I'm not so mm. sure about that, mm -hmm. uh, because I think it will only confirm that uh, Starmer is an opportunist, mm -hmm. and that he acted in bad faith uh, when he cast uh, Corbyn out of the party, uh, at least in terms of its parliamentary functioning. Well, we oftentimes uh, take, we here on this side, take our cues from uh, the UK. We've certainly done that with music in the past, to our benefit. But uh, the Democratic Party here in 2016, what you were describing, what Starmer and his gang did to Corbyn, that's what happened to Bernie Sanders. And very similar. It was, it was in, the fix was in, there was no way the party was going to allow, even though there was tremendous enthusiasm and passion, and you've got to have passion to win, for, for Bernie Sanders. And guess what happened? They lost. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yes, Hillary didn't stand for anything. You know, no, she didn't. Well, you could say, in a sense, what she stood for, which is what Starmer stands for, yeah. albeit without trumpeting this too loudly, are establishment interests. Yes. Um, in other words, the reason why Hillary seemed to lack passion, now she did lack passion, yeah. is that she basically wanted the status quo to continue. And um, that, in fact, is what is happening with uh, Keir Starmer. Oh, my. And is it, so, if I'm hearing you right, and, uh, you know, nobody has a crystal ball, but it seems like if the traditional Labour Party, which has been socialist for a long, long time, uh, to its credit, I have to say, if they don't get their act together, and it doesn't seem like they're going to do that, then all the marbles are with the, uh, <laughs> the Conservative Party, even though they're not crazy about their leader. It, it, and there's nobody 
waiting in the wings, shall we say, uh, to take over from uh, Boris Johnson. Boy, that's that's kind of a mess. <laughs> but at least it had a queen. At least it had Jubilee. And... <laughs> uh, and more about Boris Johnson. The, US, the United Kingdom has a history of bitter, often personal political division. Before, well, we've talked about the, the left a little bit. There isn't that much there to talk about. Tell us, please, about the traditional relationship between the Tories and royalty. Tell us, I, I don't know anything really about that. There was an incident where it seems that Boris Johnson lied to the Queen and how did that affect perception of Boris Johnson and his future in the Conservative Party? Apparently, it's okay to lie to the regular people, but not to the Queen. How did that affect uh, his standing with the Conservative Party? Um, well, I, to put it uh, very briefly, I think the relationship in the past, and I stress that, uh, can be summed up by the slogan, um, Crown... Uh, Tory Party Church of England, yeah. uh, the mm -hmm. Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. Yep, and that was meant to be, uh, if you like, uh, a um, a fixture, yes. an unbreakable fixture yeah. of uh, the British political scene. Mm -hmm. um, the Tory Party was solidly behind the Queen and the Church of England, mm -hmm. and so I. That uh, that configuration uh, has broken down yeah. uh, completely. There are some elderly people, uh, and we are talking about people in their seventies, um, who still adhere to it, mainly for reasons uh, that are nostalgic yes. uh, and little else. But for the younger generation, it really doesn't matter. And I think Boris Johnson made the calculation when he lied to the Queen that, look, um, really, this, uh, this is not going to be big news because I lied to the Queen in order to get Brexit done. So the people who wanted Brexit done will say, well, you know, he's just doing what we want. Uh, the younger generation um, do not really have an interest in uh, whether or not the Conservative Party mm. has a leader who will lie to the Queen, etc., etc. Yeah. So that breakdown in this, uh, what's, what in the past was a seemingly indissoluble bond between the monarchy and the Conservative Party uh, is something that Boris Johnson is uh, trading on. Uh, there's no other way of putting it. Mm. Interesting. And I, I do notice that uh, for what little I did watch of the Jubilee, the Church of England, they're, they're still there. They're still in power. I mean, they're one and the same. It, it seems like the crown, I don't know about the Tory party, but the crown and the Church of England, it, it's all together. And it's, it's kind of reassuring. And it's a nice, nostalgic uh, uh, touch. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about democracy uh, in the mother country in uh, the UK. Our guest today is uh, Professor Emeritus Kenneth Surand, Duke of Duke University, and uh, he's, his article in Counterpunch, a fun magazine, uh, had the title Queen's Jubilee Flummery, Boris Johnson's Desperate Rebranding. We've talked about Boris Johnson and the Queen. We haven't talked about Brexit. Wow. 
uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, it, it seems like you explained it a bit that, you know, it, it was attractive because it meant like England could be strong again. And there was a bit of nostalgia in there. I was surprised at that. Um, but one of the things I read just today, as a matter of fact, is that uh, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, and Scotland is still part of the UK, as is Wales and Northern Ireland for now, said she will push ahead with a vote on independence. Where does Brexit stand now with the people? And if Scotland is independent and free to go its own way, they don't have to abide by the Brexit rules. Talk about that a little bit, please, and its future. Um, well, I think it's becoming increasingly obvious to the British public uh, that um, Boris Johnson, in campaigning for Brexit, Brexit mm -hmm. uh, and uh, getting the referendum uh, won by the pro-Leave faction, and that, of course, contributed to his election as prime minister, with a thumping majority in 2019, um, Boris mm -hmm. Johnson uh, sold the British public a lemon. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear that he didn't plan properly for Brexit. He only sold it in terms of three-word slogans, take back control, make Britain great again, mm -hmm. etc. Et <laughs> uh, and so the British public... Uh, or enough of it, um, bought this, uh, bought these lies. There's no other word for them. They were yeah. lies. Yeah. Um, and he didn't plan properly for the implementation of Brexit. So there weren't arrangements put in place uh, for a new footing to the trading relationship between the EU and the UK, et cetera, et cetera. It was all done uh, completely ad hoc, um, if you like, just flitting from hmm. one chaotic moment to another, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the, the drawbacks to Brexit um, are now being felt in mm. a really practical way. So uh, popularity uh, for uh, the departure from the EU has now um, plummeted. Uh, Boris still has a core of Brexit support. Let's not deny that. Um, but by and large, people have started to open their eyes. Um, so he, uh, his position, and it's the only one uh, that he has, uh, is the right wing of his party is where the pro-Brexit ideologues are based. So if he loses the support of that base, given that the more centrist uh, conservatives uh. have already abandoned him, uh. um, he can't afford to lose that pro-Brexit ideological right-wing base in his party. So what he is doing now is to do everything to placate and accommodate that pro-Brexit right-wing uh, base mm. in his past. Yeah, well, we have a far right here in the United States that I never thought the uh, conservative Republican Party would would uh, adhere to. But, but Yes, you're right. 
<laughs> it's absolutely appalling how many Republican officeholders still, even though they know the guy lied and, and, and you know, he knew he didn't win, they're still going. It just uh, it says a lot, but that's a different subject. Do you think there's something uniquely valuable in having a clear state identity, a living symbol, one that brings together all the subjects? How valuable in the 21st century is that, do you think? Is it still valuable? Loyalty to... Uh, having having a, a, a living symbol uh, of a, to, to make a state identity. That's the identity of the UK, the Queen. Well, uh, it is for um, people who are not left-wingers, such yeah. as myself. Uh-huh. Um, it is obviously important to them. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there's much less enthusiasm uh, when it comes to Charles, uh, you know, simply because people, they, uh, you know, and even the tabloids turned somewhat against Prince Charles uh-huh. around the time of Princess Diana's death. Right. So Charles is regarded as a, a rather cold, aloof, yes. uh, self-centered so person. Uh, who was cruel to yes. the rather naive uh, Lady yeah. Diana Spencer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, you know, that impression uh, still holds with a chunk uh, of royalists, even. Yeah. So uh, the, the respect, uh, or I would even say veneration, mm-hmm. uh, that is accorded the Queen is not going to be accorded mm-hmm. uh, Prince Charles when he takes over. So I think uh, we are talking about a new scenario uh, that is going to be played out. And, of course, since we don't have a crystal ball, uh, we don't know what form that scenario will take. What's your sense of the British public support for the monarchy going forward? Um, You know, I think what will happen is that the the fringes uh, of the empire or its remnants, Mm -hmm. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Uh, what we will do is, and I think there is a a clear sign of this, what they will do is uh, the queen is notionally their head of state. And what they will do when Prince Charles takes over is to say, look, um, this is just a holdover from the past that is no longer meaningful to us, etc., etc., uh, we want to have our own head of state. Uh, you be the head of state of the United Kingdom if it continues to exist in the present form. Mm. But we want gone. Um, that feeling is very strong in Australia. I think it remains uh, in Canada, especially in Francophone Canada. Oh, sure. um, and uh, so that is where the erosion uh, will begin, I think. And that erosion will, I think, uh, add force to the anti-royalist lobby uh, or constituency in the United Kingdom. So it won't unravel immediately, but I think crumbling as opposed to being dissolved immediately uh, in an overnight fashion, Uh. uh, crumbling and erosion 
will be the metaphor that I will, would use for that. Well, that's quite a bit safer than just a sudden, you know, change and doing away with it, uh, having it, uh, and, and the fact that you can see it coming with uh, the various different uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, one can see it coming. And I, I thought it was interesting in her Jubilee speech, the Queen said, my heart has been with you all and I remain committed to serving you. I'm not quite sure what her service is. <laughs> well, uh, symbolic service, obviously. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I will serve you in symbolic terms. Uh-huh. Uh, in other words, I'll put on a good show. Uh, I will do my best despite my uh, age-related infirmity. Mm. I will do my best to be at the celebrations, etc., etc. You know, the uh, the bread and circuses, yep. as some people put it more cruelly. <laughs> uh, the, I will continue to do the best I can with the bread and circus, uh, circuses aspect of my job. I think that's what she's saying when she says, I will continue to serve you. Well, it's been a, it was a lovely jubilee. I suspect it'll be the last. Thank you so much. It's an interesting uh, future going forward for uh, for the UK, formerly Great Britain. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so okay. much, Professor Ken uh, Surin. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I enjoyed it. All right. Likewise. Thanks. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Yeah, yeah. 